Welcome back to The Will and Rob Show. Last week, we were excited to have Mako Fujimara on the show to discuss beauty, art, culture care, and a whole bunch of other topics. I definitely recommend that you go back and check that episode out if you missed it. Uh, but one thing that came out of our conversation uh, was the incredible shaping and forming power of culture. Perhaps no culture has as much power in this regard than the internet. I know I have found myself spending more time than usual on my phone and laptop thanks to COVID-19. I get those notifications from my phone. My screen time is up a million percent each week uh, and increasingly finding myself uh, susceptible to its ability to shape my thoughts and emotions. So today, uh, Will and I wanted to tackle this uh, difficult question in what is sure to be a recurring theme in our show. But as always, Will, how are you doing? Gosh, thank you so much for asking. As with, uh, <laughs> life and shutdown, I am doing as I've always done, or at least for the last four or five weeks, just making it, just kind of moving along day by day and uh, ready for things to open back up. This weekend was absolutely beautiful in DC, and there were people out all over the place. Uh, social distancing. Yes, but there were way more people in Lincoln Park than I have seen in, in the past month. Well, I know a bunch of people went outside to go check out the Blue Angels. Did you see the did you see the flyover? I didn't. I missed it. Which I'm ashamed to say because I like as a kid I made one of those um model airplanes, a blue angel. What was it? Confession, it wasn't actually the blue angel. I painted it as a blue angel, but I didn't actually get the same model, but uh, I heard them and, and saw a video, man, they're just so awesome. They're so yeah. awesome. My wife texted me and said I needed to go out on our patio to see them. Uh, Cause I guess she saw them flying over where she was at uh, during the day and I completely missed them too. So it's kind of a bummer, but I saw a lot of photos on Facebook and Twitter of, of folks who had seen them. So it looked really cool. Um, yeah. So today we wanted to talk about the internet, which is such a broad topic, but really coming out of our conversation with Mako, what are the things that are forming and shaping us? Um, it's usually the culture that we find ourselves in. And increasingly today, we're finding ourselves in an internet culture just because of COVID-19. Um, I know I get, I mean, I get those notifications every week that tell me that my screen time is up a ton. Are you finding that to be the case for you too? I don't know if my screen time is up as much on my phone. I I'm on my computer more for sure. I think what's more alarming to me is just kind of the general way that someone be like, Hey, you're probably addicted to your phone. It's like, no, there's no way I'm not addicted to my phone. And then there have been times I just reach for it just impulsively, or I don't know if you've had this happen, but being out, this was before COVID-19, we could actually have fun and gather together being out with people and seeing a phone on the table and mistaking it for mine and just grabbing it and almost walking away with it till I realized that it's someone else's. That, that's happened to me multiple times. And this just instinctive reaching for something that is almost an appendage to, to living. Yeah. Yeah. I've never had that at case. I've never accidentally okay, grabbed right. somebody else's phone. That must just be you. I don't know if you're a, a klepto or something, but no, that doesn't happen no. to me. One thing I have noticed that I'm quite embarrassed and I'm ashamed to admit, but it's true. During virtual church, much more tempted to be on my phone and catch myself frequently uh, turning to it, uh, either to check text messages or even Twitter sometimes, especially when you know like there's like a lag in the video or there's like sort of an awkward transition. 
just sort of not wanting to watch it, but sort of instinctively turning to my phone. Never something that happened to me when I was meeting in person at church, but something I well, Robert, frequently I'm, struggle I'm sure with now. You just want to dive more deeply into the text. I'm sure that you're, you're using your Logos tech uh, software to just better understand. That's probably what you're going That's to a do. good excuse. I'm going to use that one next time when my sure. wife gets mad at me. So thank you, know, you my, for that. Um, but I think that, I think that's what's, what's been interesting is hearing from people about how much that they're on their phone, trying to find ways to get away from screens. Um, I've heard a lot about Zoom fatigue. I've heard a lot about sort of just hours spent streaming shows or, or what have you. And I think what's, what's interesting is uh, the way that those things can shape our perception of what, what's going on around us. I think this is especially true with COVID-19 with your social media feeds and your, maybe you uh, are watching cable news or, or what have you. Um, it just seems that there's just an onslaught of new figures and new data points and new graphs that you have to be aware of, um, new rules, new guidelines. And uh, I wonder how all of these things shape how we are interacting with the times, either uh, emotionally or spiritually. Wanted to know if you had any thoughts about that or any, any conversations you have with folks where they're sort of feeling that, that aspect of it. Well, I haven't had any real conversations about that. I, I do think that the way we read on our devices, particularly phones and tablets, it is a different way to engage with texts. And it's kind of multifaceted. I think one is the fact that it's not as much linear. It's not completely from left to right. Uh, you can swipe in every direction and have you take your, have your mind take you somewhere. So there's something cognitive at least different that's happening. I also think that it's an engagement of image and text. So it's kind of like being back in a children's book. So you have these dynamic images like being in by being in Harry Potter world, right? So you can you can have these animated graphics or whatever going on at the same time. So um, I remember, I know this show is not loved by those who work in, in news, but the show uh, Newsroom, where he talks about, he always wanted a set of encyclopedias. And the reason he wanted that was the ability to just to browse, to pull something and flip through flip through a book and, and land on something unexpected. And I do think that when we're reading on our phones, there is something of that that's really lost, this ability just to flip randomly and, and to go back and forth in a certain way. But I probably sound like a bibliophile or something like that saying you know this and be accused. But um, I know that also when I spend a certain amount of time on my phone, I feel different. I don't, uh, it kind of messes with my head and even my stomach sometimes. So I, I don't enjoy like reading for a long time on my phone for that, for that reason. Hmm. The great thing about Twitter is that you can sort of scroll through it and you might get a tweet about something about sports and then you might get something about news and then you might get something about what your friends are up to that day. I think it, that's the ideal, right? But w what ends up happening uh, with Twitter is as you're scrolling through, yes, you're getting a bunch of different topics, but it tends to be driven to get you to think about something a certain way. It has demands on you. It has demands on your emotions and your biases and your prejudices, I think is another element of Twitter that, that ends up happening. And so right now, and that can happen in the most sort of uh, what you would consider the most non-political thing. So right now ESPN is, is doing a 10 part series on oh called the last dance on oh the Chicago God. bulls. And 
when that show is on on Sunday nights, my entire Twitter feed, regardless of, you know, I follow pastors and ministry leaders and, you know, then I follow sports people and then I follow authors and everyone is tweeting about this thing, right? This, cause this is the only thing that's happening on television. And you can go through there and you will see people with thoughts and ideas about how much they love the 98 bulls, people who hate the 98 bulls, people who love Michael Jordan, people who don't like Michael Jordan. You see debates about who's better, uh, LeBron James or Michael Jordan. It's just interesting that in these online communities where we were sort of told, we were sort of promised it's knowledge at your fingertips. It's information. It's being able to browse a infinitely volumed encyclopedia. What it really ends up being is this uh, portal where our opinions and our biases are formed by whoever we happen to be reading at the time. And it's just something that happens. Um, and I think to your point about images in particular, this sort of is the reason why I think YouTube ends up being the most um, influential in this digital space. I don't know if you've been following or have caught up with the, um, the new New York Times podcast that just came out in the last month or so called Rabbit Hole. Oh, yeah. 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 It's great. It's great. And it's a great look at exactly this question. How does the internet form us? And they specifically look at YouTube and uh, track a young man named Caleb who went from being sort of an average man uh, in, the, in the current political climate, sort of late Gen Xer, early millennial, and sort of tracks his progress from watching YouTube videos from going from a totally normal guy to kind of finding himself caught up in a lot of dangerous political ideologies just by watching YouTube videos. I mean, I've definitely caught myself going down YouTube videos, uh, YouTube rabbit holes. I think maybe probably everyone has, and it can be a scary thing. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things about this. One is they, the, the videos that he watched preyed on a, a vacuum that existed in his life and kind of filled that and then started making So there was something that was already there pre-existent that kind of radicalized him. And with this, they interview, uh, uh, Guillaume, right? The French, uh, YouTube engineer, Google YouTube engineer. And it really got me thinking on like the morals and the ethics of recommended videos, because it's one thing when you have a platform that just says, Hey, we're going to put, anything and everything on here. You, you can put whatever you want, unless it's extreme content, we will remove it. That, that's one thing. There's something neutral about that. But once there is like a, hey, you should try this, there is an agency involved that was previously lacking that I think holds, would hold normally someone culpable to, to their recommendation, for their recommendation. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how um, YouTube started off, my wife and I were watching sort of like the best of early YouTube and you forgot, like we forgot how innocent it was. Like there were just basically funny cat videos and like people doing, uh, do you remember the Numa Numa dance guy? Oh my gosh. Like oh. stuff like that and how now it's really moved towards being a, a prime source where people get news and information. And But I think you're exactly right. It's sort of the algorithm, the quote unquote, uh, algorithm and how it drives people to watch uh, certain content over others. It is quite the, scary. Well, I think the first YouTube video was by a YouTube engineer and it was called me at the zoo. And it was just Tim at like in front of an elephant exhibit. 
and it was 19 seconds long or something like that because in the rabbit hole podcast mentions this but you for a long time they had a 15 minute time limit on their videos and that limits just like twitter does with what you're able to put out there but yeah it was incredibly like it was like a step above e-bombs world it was right it was a little more like safe e-bombs world was like kind of a dark there's some weird stuff there <laughs> youtube was just a little like more sophisticated and cleaned up but now i mean it's it's everything it, it is online video right you can go on there and, and like this this young man caleb talks about like you can just watch two three hour videos of people going on monologues about any political topic you could think of and um, what was really interesting i think for folks who are in a ministry context and are thinking about the forming and shaping power that youtube twitter facebook the internet in general has on its congregants but especially their younger members i think what we need to remember is that if you're watching two three hour long videos you know every single day they are quickly being overwhelmed by more content than you could ever hope to get in if you are just reaching them on Sunday mornings. You know what I mean? I, I think that ministry leaders in particular need to recognize the real, how, how these platforms have saturated, especially younger people's lives. And not necessarily, I, I, I don't think the answer is necessarily, how do we use these tools and like take them over? Because I think that's too often the conversation. I think the conversation a lot is like, how do we, you know, become the next like YouTube church or how the next, you know, how do we, how do we uh, use these platforms for our own good? Which I think there's room for that conversation there. But I think what I'm more interested in is what has clearly been revealed is that there is a desire for, fo for folks in their hearts. There's that sort of, what uh, I can't remember who said it, but sort of the God shaped hole in your heart. And people are going to fill it with whatever idol they can find. And if they go to YouTube and the internet, that's going to be a lot of worldly things. And instead, we should be interested in figuring out how do we plug that hole with the gospel? Um, so there's, the, there's the Andy Crouch idea that the best way to change culture is to make it. So there's one sense in, in you know, if YouTube is full of what we may call trash or... I mean, a lot of it is, is somewhat just banal. Like it, it's just, it's just kind of, and, and we're benign, but there's also room, I guess, to, to be adding our own to it, uh, our own content to it as well. It's also an incredible area to like learn from, to see, to see what videos are trending and what people are watching. I watched this video of these, it was like these YouTube stars and they're like in their early twenties was these twins uh, guys and they like had this video that had all their other internet twin celebrities got on a zoom call and it was so boring like but it was getting millions of views and it was supposed to be hilarious and I was like I do not understand what I'm looking at at all was that like, your first I'm getting too old moment no no <laughs> that wasn't what I was getting too old that's not how I feel about that no it was just like it was just insipid like I didn't get it I didn't get why, why people thought that was funny. Uh, I remember when I was in youth ministry and I'd pick up one of my students this one time, he was like, he's like, how you doing Liam? And he's like, I'm really tired. And I was like, Oh, interesting. Well, why are you tired? I was, like, I was up late watching videos. Like, Oh, what are you watching? I was watching shoe reviews on YouTube. And 
just watching hours and hours of these latest releases, these, and I would never do that. I would never like, I'll, I'll, I know what I like and I'll like, gosh, I do sound like an old person. I have to, I have to reconcile with that right These crazy kids. Crazy kids. But it's everything. It's from, you know, silly pranks to commerce. Right. And um, it's not creating desire only. It, It is, understanding that desire that's there and, and seeking to satisfy it. So, I mean, you have some experience with this in, in, in terms of youth ministry. I, I would be sort of curious, what do you think? Like what, what are the ways that church leaders can respond to these things, uh, these digital platforms? How can we provide a different narrative about internet culture or, how we should be engaging with it um, as Christians. Gosh, that's tough. I was at a dinner with um, a bunch of guys and one of the men there was a dad of one of my students and they were talking about cell phones and the internet. And and he said, what he said was we're terrified. And I was like, what? And he's like, we know us parents that we will never ever be able to do enough to be preventative of them finding something on the internet. Like it is so invasive that no amount of, of firewalls, no amount of safety features will keep a student away from finding some, something. We had a case one time where this kind of bully kid stole another kid's phone and looked up porn on it. And, you know, uh, this super innocent kid was like all of a sudden had that on his phone and he had never done that. So that was a situation that had to be dealt with. So. I think it's a tragedy, but the realization that not to surrender, but to realize first, like this thing moves way faster than we do. Virginia Heffernan has this quote where she says, uh, the internet moves too fast to be legible mm-hmm. is something that she says. And I think there, there's something to that. And it we can't really understand it. it's always moving. So I think a lot of it is, yes, doing the practical things, being aware that it's doing so much more than just watching and taking in content that it is shaping and forging and making a person. And uh, additionally to just have those, those good conversations, ask about what they're watching to monitor it. So yeah, man, I, I it's beyond me. Let me ask you this. Uh, Cause this is something I've always struggled with or wondered about too. Obviously you know, so many Christians today are on Twitter, they're on Facebook. They're, not only are they consuming content, but they're also creating it uh, and to in an extent, whether that's just posts or perhaps having something like a, a, a YouTube show or, or something along those lines. And quite often, these folks, I know I am, I'm friends with my pastor on Facebook. I have guys in ministry that follow me on Twitter. Do you think that there's a place there where we see a member of maybe one of our congregants at our church or or what have you, or of even just a friend posting things on social media or the internet? Is there, what's the protocol? Where do we, where do we step in and, and talk about those kind of things? Do you have a particular instance in mind? I don't, I'm really thinking generally speaking, I, I think that there has been talk, of, especially in this era of very hyper-partisanship, comments on Facebook or Twitter on both sides of the aisle going too far to a, to a degree where it was, it, 
people have asked, what is the role of church and ministry leaders? What, what are they to do? Ah, uh, man, I don't know. I, I don't ever engage on Twitter or, or Facebook into debates. There's so many times where I would like to, but I realize like, there's just no point. It, there, it just makes me look bad or would be mean. Uh, and it probably just ended up backfiring. Honestly, I would probably just get stomped by someone if I were to try to engage in it. So I, I wouldn't engage online. Um, it looks it, to me, it looks petty. I don't know. Do the same rules apply as normal? Like you just, if you have a relationship with that person, talk to them. If not, I mean, is it our fight? Is it, is it the, I mean, it all of a sudden, like, do we become, is there, what is it? Are we like, are we just naturally inclined to be police on the internet? We feel this, you know, proclivity to monitor and, and tell someone to stop when, because we think it's in our living room, but the truth is it's in everybody's living room. There's nothing unique about it being with us, but yeah, it's weird. Yeah. I'm very hesitant to tell uh, pastors and church leaders who for the most part seem to be uh, communicating that they are just doing so much to sort of be like, okay, now you have to now monitor everybody's social media uh, pages. That seems to me to be just another. Oh, are you thinking like church discipline stuff? I'm not necessarily, maybe, I mean, I have no idea like that. I'm thinking of just sort of, you know, what do, what do we do about those kind of things? I, I think what your, your point about not engaging online, I think is important. I think that we have to recognize that online speech is just way different than what we might communicate in person. I remember reading uh, Arthur Brooks. That. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, okay. I'll say this. The, the, we can say online speech is different. Uh, the fact that you'll, you'll abbreviate instead of right now, you say RN, you'll use like an online word, like, but th- the truth is that that language seeps into normal conversation and like, it doesn't stay there. Yes. Online speak is different, but it's almost a, a forming ground for interacting outside. Like for sure. Pwned, you know, when we were in high school, that, that was just a typo, but it became like, it was said, it was, it was spoken. You didn't just type it. And I was, yeah. I was, naive. I was like, what the heck is pwned? There's not even an O in it. I just. <laughs> That's totally true. I, I was thinking uh, more along the lines of the way that we speak via online tends to be different in terms of tone and the way that we express our emotions via online. So what I'm talking about more is that People online, and this is, Arthur Brooks talks about this in his, his latest book, uh, Love Your Enemies. And he sort of talks about how the internet allows you a certain cover where you can sort of say whatever you want because you're not going to have to deal with the real in-person ramifications of, as if you were so rude to somebody in person. So if I call you an idiot in person. Which you've done, I'm sure. Which I've done a couple times. Sure, sure. But th- that has a much different social stigma to it. It has, it demands different uh, reactions and obligations to right the wrong on my part. Whereas when you, when somebody calls somebody an idiot on, on the internet, it tends to sort of go, go unchallenged and you can sort of get away with those kind of things. I, I'm thinking about more, you know, what do we do when we see things like that? What do we do when, members of our own church or 
people that we consider brothers and sisters in Christ are doing things like that. And I think your point about not engaging online is important. I think in order to fix online behavior, it's going to have to start in person. It's going to have to start with recognizing how does this thing change me? When I log in, how are my emotions, my thoughts, the way I speak, how is it all being formed by this new context that I'm jumping into? And if they're going to be fixed, they have to start in person offline. Man, yeah. And I think if I if someone calls me an idiot face-to-face, it might hurt a little more face-to-face, but it still hurts. And it's also more public when it's online. And so there's more shame involved there. So people might, there, there may be less, Hey man, don't do that. Like you, you yell, you yell at someone idiot in a coffee shop and they're like, Hey, <laughs> it's a little, little tough, but like on, and on the internet, it's like, all right, that's pretty standard for the day, but it, people are still left hurting. And it's hard to see that situation being actually alleviated without a, an offline conversation. Yeah. I think another thing rabbit holes has been showing me and, and something that I've just experienced in my own time on Facebook uh, and Twitter is that uh, the internet allows for you to make really broad general sweeping claims about um, groups of people um, in particular that you could never really get away with saying in person, or if you did say it in person, it would just be re- received just so differently. And I think that's another really terrifying part about the internet. And so when Caleb talks about how he watched all these videos about people demonizing, whether it was immigrants or uh, people of different socioeconomic statuses or or what have you, that's such an easier thing to do speaking into a, you know, a camera on your, on your computer than it is if you're in person with somebody trying to recognize the, where something might become personal for somebody else. We just tend to be a lot more, I think, empathetic and sympathetic in real life conversation than we do online. And we sort of need to realize that, that if we're spending so much more time on the internet and and getting inundated with that culture, we're creating a susceptibility for ourselves to go out and mimic that in real life. And that's a very dangerous thing that we need to be mindful of. Or at the very least to be duplicitous thinking those thoughts online, they're, they're sticking with me somewhere, wherever I go. And just if I may act differently, it's not that they weren't performed at some point. And that's, boy, I don't, that's, that's, not, that's not comfortable. Yeah. So I, I think one thing that I have kind of a goal for myself is I, as I go through the rest of shelter in place, um, at least I at least got another month and a half, is really tracking. You know, what am I, be, what am I consuming when I go on the internet? What am I looking at? What am I reading? I recently decided after our conversation with uh, Mako to decided to kind of do a purge of my people I'm following on Twitter and just trying mm-hmm. to keep folks that either tend to be a little bit more on the negative side or just, uh, I guess, just aren't filling my, this is going to sound really cheesy, but people who aren't filling my Twitter feed with beauty, like get out of here. That's kind of mm-hmm. my, my approach as I've looked at some of these things. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've been doing this Twitter purge, so now you have less individuals flowing through your Twitter feed. I'm a terrible multitasker. Like, I, I cannot be on my phone and listen to people the same time. I have to really try to do that. Are you able to actually be on Twitter 
reading people's tweets about The Last Dance and watch The Last Dance at the same time? No, I have not gotten that good at the internet. I cannot live tweet anything. Um, so I watch My Last Dance later on my ESPN Plus account, another one of my internet subscriptions. Well, we're about out of time, so we're going to wrap up. But thank you for listening to The Will and Rob Show. Please remember to subscribe and give us a review and visit us at ministrytostate.org. We are on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And as always, we'll see you all next week.